Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, and we are really the best book for me. Um, you're saying Trippy Tall Radio. I want to say happy anniversary for our show. Oh, we actually started on April 26, 2009. So it's coming up on eight years. So I count this as the anniversary show, though. So I want to thank you. If you've been listening that long, thanks for listening. And let's see. 
we're going to do is now I'm going to start with the lesson. The lesson is about, let's see, it is John MacArthur with, with Freedom in Christ, and this is part one here on Truth Be Told. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2017. And now, Unleashing God's Truth, one verse at a time. Here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. Let me read this passage to you while you're preparing your thoughts for our study. Ephesians 1.15 Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenlies far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well, that scripture is so loaded with great truth that we're not going to be able by any means to exhaust its content this time, next time, or for that matter, probably ever in our thinking. But it introduces to us a very important portion of the first chapter. This is a prayer by the Apostle Paul. It is a prayer in response to the great statement of theology in verses 3 to 14. Now, if you've been with us, you know that from verse 3 through 14 is one long sentence. And it is a sentence designed to tell us what it is that God has done for us in Christ. In other words, what we possess in Christ. It discusses the great concept of election, the great concept of redemption, and the great truth of inheritance. In the past, God elected us, He redeems us, and in the future, gives us an inheritance. Now, the truths in verses 3 to 14 are really beyond the possibility of the human mind to grasp. Frankly, our human mind cannot reach that deep into the truth of God. That is something we cannot do. We cannot mine that kind of truth out of our humanness. In 1 Corinthians, there is a very important text in this regard, chapter 2, verse 10, uh, verse 9 we could start with, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. In other words, empiricism or experiment can't see it, 
eye or ear, and intuition and rationalism can't see it, neither has it entered into the heart of man. It can't be known externally. It can't be really known internally. The things that God has prepared for them that love Him. But God has revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, watch the next line, yes, even the deep things of God. You see, in order for us to even understand this incredible legacy that's ours in Christ, we must depend upon the Holy Spirit. For what, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.11, for what knoweth the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. In other words, we must depend upon the Spirit of God for an understanding of the deep things of God. And believe me, Ephesians 1.3-14 are the deep things of God. Tremendous truths, deep truths that our human mind cannot conceive. So, having delineated something of these truths that are ours in Christ, Paul then moves to pray for us that we would understand these truths. It doesn't do any good to know them if we don't understand them, because if we don't understand them, we can't live them, see. So, in chapter 1, Paul begins with describing our position in Christ. Then he prays that we'll understand it. In chapter 2, Paul describes our position in Christ. Then in chapter 3, again, he prays that we'll understand it. Finally, in chapter 4, he says, Now that you've got it and you understand it, here's how to live it. So twice he describes the believer's position. Chapter 1, chapter 2. Twice he prays that we'll understand it. Chapter 1 and chapter 3. Finally, in chapter 4, he says, now that you've got a grip on it, live it. Now, the point is this, people. You cannot live what you do not, what? Understand. Understand. You can't live it. You cannot function on principles you don't know. No Christian has ever yet lived the Christian life who didn't know what it was. You've got to have it. You Christians all over the place are frustrated no end, trying to live a life that's never been defined for them. And Paul knows, as a man of God, that it is not just a case of telling people, you've got to pray that God will energize the information. Now, I believe that that's why in Acts 6, the Bible says that the apostles said, we will give ourselves continually to the ministry of the Word and prayer. Why? Because the ministry of the Word must be energized by the Spirit of God, and that is sought in intercessory prayer on behalf of the people. I don't think that the man of God's job is just to pray for the broken legs and the broken arms and the bad backs and the diseases of his people. I think he is to pray that they, as it says in verse 17, would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, that they would know what is the hope of their calling. 
It's not enough just to teach. It must be taught and then prayed in, as it were, by the energy of the Spirit of God released as a response to intercessory prayer. Now, what really is going on here is simply this then. Paul is describing our position and praying we'll understand it before he tells us how to live it in chapter 4. Now, knowing your position is important. You know, if you take a new job, usually at some point they give you a description of what you're supposed to do. Uh, Sometimes it's called a portfolio if you're an executive. If you're on an assembly line, they tell you what to do. You don't have to know everything. You just need to know what you do, and you can't start the process until you know. If sometime you have to be trained for a job. Well, same thing is true in athletics. As an athlete, as an ex-athlete, better correct that. Getting old. As a former athlete, one of the things that I can remember coach after coach talking to me about was, was my position. I started out in high school playing shortstop on the baseball team when I was in the ninth grade. And so the coach said, now I gotta to explain to you how to play the position properly. In basketball, it was playing guard. In football, it was a, it was a quarterback. And I had to learn my position before I could play it. I remember when I was in college, we had a great athlete on our football team. The guy was just physically super quick, fast, tremendously strong, really could pump weights, and and very, very, very aggressive. You know, the kind of a guy that you could get in the locker room to go full blast and put his head into a locker. You know, just that kind of a guy. Just, you know. Well, that used to be a big thing when I was in college. See if you could find the space between the two-by-fours on the plaster wall and put your head through it, you know. Those were not the Phi Beta Kappa athletes, incidentally. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) that was part of it, see. Well, so Kurt was this guy's name. And I mean, he was tough as nails. And they, they, they decided to make him a middle linebacker. That's what he'd been in high school. And, of course, he was all over the place. When you get to college, he gets a little more sophisticated, and you can't run amok. And so they tried to design for Kurt some limitations to what he could do. Now, the idea was, you got this much territory. This is your position. Now, stay there. Because when you leave there, we're in trouble. But invariably, what would happen was that the quarterback would make a fake somewhere, and Kurt would be long gone after the first fake. The counter would come back and goodbye because nobody was home where Kurt was supposed to be. Well, this went on for about four games, and finally this guy, who was probably the best athlete we had on the team, wound up on the bench because he couldn't play his position. Now, this is just part of it in anything you do. You're given an assignment, the parameters are defined, and you're asked to fulfill those. Number one, you must hear the definition of it. Number two, you must understand it, then you can do it. But you can't do it without the first two. Same thing is true of the Christian. You can't just try to get people to behave in a certain manner unless they understand the parameters and definition of what it is that they're asked to do. And yet, you know, it's a sad thing, but it's true. Church after church after church after church, people will get up and they'll tell people what to do, but they never give them the parameters or an understanding of what it is that they're really doing. You know, you get up and you exhort people to live the Christian life and do what's right and live for God and get dedicated, consecrated, irrigated, whatever it is, and, you know, goes on and on. And try to get them to live it up. And you, you, you really are you're working on them from the standpoint of sort of a halftime pep talk every Sunday to try to jack them up again and get them rolling, see. Or else you put them under a guilt trip and they begin to feel like they're just really, they got to do this or God is going to be right on them, see. 
And so they get to feel guilty. Or you intimidate them. Or there's a certain peer pressure exerted on them, and if they don't function, they're not one of the in-groups. And all of this bypasses the real motive for living the Christian life. The real guts of it, the real heart of it, the real base of it is simply understanding who you are in Christ. That's the base. Knowing your position. I remember as a little kid that people were always reminding me who I was because my father was a preacher. And my father was one who was also always reminding me who I was because he felt that I should live in a certain manner so that it wouldn't reflect on his ministry. And I had some trouble with that because I was kind of a rambunctious little guy. And and, uh, I remember, well, there's a lot of things I remember. I'm not going to go into all of them, but I can think of a couple of things. When I was a real kid, I used to tell stories sometimes. I remember one thing my dad, I bit for a while when I was little. I bit other little kids, and um, I don't know what I was lashing out at, but my father finally put a sign around my neck, do not play with me, I bite, and I had to, (laughs) I wore that sign every day for a week and never bit another kid. It worked, and I remember when I was a little kid, my dad also tied me to the clothesline for a week so I wouldn't cross the street when I was told not to, but he was very concerned that I live up to the standard that he had set. See, I'm just like the rest of you, right? But I remember one time, I, was, I got into a situation where I was prone to tell fibs. And, and I, could, I, did, I could make up some really good ones. And I remember in the second grade, I told my teacher that my dad was chopping wood and he chopped off his legs. And, uh, and in fact, I carried it on day after day. I had the teacher really concerned and, and so forth and so on. I was giving him a day-by-day description of the hospital and how everything was going and, and we had an open house at the end of the week, which I hadn't forgotten about, and my father came. <laughs> the teacher looked at my father and said, Oh, Reverend MacArthur, you're doing so well. <laughs> he said, Huh? And I was taken home and uh, soundly thrashed. And I, there were several things in my life. I remember one time when I did something very bad, and I wound up in deep, deep trouble, and And uh, my mother said to me, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what that does to your father and his ministry and so forth and so forth? Well, you know, in a sense, that was okay. I mean, you say, well, you shouldn't scold a kid on that basis. Yeah, it's all right to do that, I think. We do have a certain responsibility to honor our parents. That's biblical. But, you know, I always think back on that, and I think about the fact that, by the way, I don't do those things anymore. I just want you to know that. But I... uh, But I just think back about the fact that, you know, that's a great basis for a Christian life. You know, I am who I am in Christ, therefore I behave the way I behave, see. This is basic to Christianity. You must understand who you are in Christ. That and that alone is the foundation upon which you operate. And if all you do is just get in the pulpit or all you do is just try to challenge yourself to live the Christian life, whimsically beating yourself sort of into it emotionally, you're going to miss it. You've got to understand the foundation principles. This is who I am. This is my position. This is my understanding of it. And Paul is praying, oh, God, may they deeply understand who they are. May they get a grip on this incredible reality that they are one with the eternal God through Christ, that all of the, of the blessings of the heavenlies are theirs, that this is the standard of their existence forever, and may they live like it, see? That's what he's after. 
And so I tell pastors all the time, man, when you get into the pulpit, teach positional truth. Teach people what their position in Christ is. Then tell them how to act. If they don't know who they are, they don't know why they ought to act that way. So important. Position and practice. Now, you have to make a distinction in all of your study of the Bible between those two things. People who don't distinguish between those two things really get confused. If you don't understand what statements in the Bible are positional and what are practical or what deal with your standing before God and what deal with your experience, you'll never interpret the Bible right. For example, in one passage in the Bible, it simply says this, now you are holy. You say, me? That's right. You're holy. In another verse, it says to the very same people, cleanse yourselves from all filthiness. Now, wait a minute. You just said we're holy, and now you say cleanse yourselves from filthiness. But you see, if you don't know the difference, you're going to go like this and think at one minute you're holy and one minute you're filthy. The fact of the matter is you're holy in your position before God in Christ, and you're not in your practice. So that this is the way the Christian life goes. Here is your position in Christ, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, one with Christ, an eternal, unchanging, invariable reality. But your practice is down here, and the Christian life is making your practice equal your what? Your position. That's it. That's it. It's making your practice equal your position. Now, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand our position because he knows that unless we do, we're not going to have the right motive to live the life. I'm a child of the King. I am one with Jesus Christ. He lives in me and through me. Now that demands out of me a certain kind of behavior, right? That's the essence of his thought. So, he has shared in the first 14 verses the great, deep, rich truths of what is ours in Christ. And now he prays that we would understand it. He prays that we would get a grip on it. And people, I want you to understand this. Christian growth has nothing, I'll say it again, Christian growth has nothing to do with your position in Christ. Nothing. When you were saved, you were in Christ. How much of your sin was forgiven? All. You received eternal life. You're made perfect. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. God sees you as absolutely perfect and righteous. That's your position. Christian growth has nothing to do with it. But your practice is where the growth comes. I've often said that the Christian life is the process, watch this, of becoming what you are. Okay? Becoming what you are. Now, let me illustrate for a minute. There are a lot of people who think that Christian growth, like when you grow and mature as a Christian and you develop, makes God like you better. Now, we're kind of like this. We're this way humanly. You know, we say... Um, to our kids now and then. Well, mommy won't love you if you do that. Well, I'll like you a lot better if you do this. God is not like mommy. What you do or don't do has absolutely no effect on your position before God. You can't do anything to make him like you better. You can't do anything to make him like you less because he loves you totally and perfectly in Christ, right? You can't do anything to make Him forgive you more or less. He forgave you already everything. You can't do anything to earn more salvation or to give up some of it. You can't do that because you already have it total and complete. There's no more or no less. 
You see, positionally, it's all yours. You are already accepted in the beloved one, verse 6 says of chapter 1. Already. We're already in God's favor. We're already in God's grace. For Christ's sake, everything is settled. We are one with Christ. He sees us just as he sees Jesus Christ. Nothing you do can increase you in God's favor. Nothing you do can decrease you in God's favor positionally. Your standing is perfect. Colossians 2.10 says, And you are complete in Him. Hebrews 10 says, And He has perfected you forever by the one offering of Jesus Christ. Positionally perfect. Com positionally complete. 2 Peter 1, he says, that you have been made a partaker of the divine nature. Perfection again. Positionally, you're in Christ. He doesn't see you anymore as an individual in that sense. He sees you in Christ with his righteousness. You are a partaker of the divine nature. Peter says you have all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have received great and precious promises. But then Peter goes on in 2 Peter 1, verse 4 to say, verse 5, now that you have that position, here's how to match up your practice. Add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to knowledge patience, to patience so forth goodness, to goodness brotherly love, to brotherly love kindness, etc. In other words, he's saying now get your practice moving toward your position. This is who you are. This is how you act like it. You know, it's kind of like the difference between a baby and a pollywog. You know, when I was a little kid and you were too, you used to collect pollywogs. And a pollywog was a little blob with a tail. And you'd get a little polywog in a coffee can or something or a jar, and you'd watch that little polywog, and you'd drop in some grass or something, and pretty soon that little polywog would spoing, and a couple of legs would come out in the back, right? And a little while later, you didn't have a polywog. Something else would pop out of the front, and pretty soon you had a frog. But babies aren't like that. When a baby's born into the world, it's not a blob with a tail. And you don't wait three months, and boing, boing, two legs pop out. <laughs> a little later, boom, little arms. Oh, Ethel, he's growing an ear, finally. No. <laughs> Doesn't happen. Now, the difference is this. When a baby comes into the world, it has all the parts. It's perfect. It just needs to grow, right? Same thing is true of a Christian. When you were born into the family of God, you were not a spiritual polywog. You weren't incomplete. You were complete. You were all there, all the parts, totally, completely there. It was simply a matter of maturing. And that's the way it is spiritually. What, what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 3.14 is dead right. He was right on center when he said it. He said, I know this, that whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. He was dead right. When God does a work of salvation, it's a total thing. It's complete. And you're perfect before God. And it's just a matter of growing to match your practice to your position. Just like that little baby learns to use all of those facilities and resources that are that baby's at birth. So instead of seeking more favor with God, instead of trying to make God like us better, instead of trying to be more fit for heaven, we should just thank God who has already made us, Colossians 1.12, listen to this, He has already made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You're already fit for it. Nothing you do will make Him like you better. He loves you so much already, it's impossible to love you more. So Christian growth has nothing to do with your position. It has only to do with your practice. And you need to understand that. And you don't want to run around trying to make God like you better. 
If you're a Christian, he loves you totally. You couldn't be any better positionally. But, oh, man, when you understand positionally what you have in Christ, when you understand all these resources that you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, that you were redeemed and your sins were forgiven, and He has granted to you to be a part of His eternal plan and to call you into that great unity with which the whole universe ultimately ends up, when you realize that this inheritance is planned for you, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, when you realize that all these things are yours in Christ, that you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. When you realize that all of that is yours and that's who you are, that ought to do something about how you live. Really should. And that's the bottom line. You cannot exhort people to a certain behavior unless they understand who they are. And so Paul here is praying that we and the Ephesians will understand Constant exhortation without theology just brings people under guilt. It doesn't motivate them. So the mature Christian understands his privileges, his possessions, checks out his resources, lives consistent with who he is. In fact, over in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. Now watch that you walk worthy of the vocation to which you are called. He has spent three chapters, now watch me, three chapters describing the calling, and now he says, therefore, here is how you live. Now, if you've been at Grace Church any time, you know that that's a principle all through the New Testament. All through the New Testament. You go into the book of Romans, you've got 11 chapters of theology, and then in chapter 12, Therefore, here is how you live. In Galatians, you've got four chapters of theology. Finally, chapter 5, therefore, here is how you live. Colossians, the first section, theology, therefore, here is how you live. That's the way it always is in the New Testament. Because position is the predicate, the basis on which practice is built. Now, let's look at his prayer then. We'll look at the first part of it, verses 15 to 17 this morning. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Stop there. Now, in this, he just introduces to us the idea that he is praying. Wherefore, it takes us back. On the basis of this tremendous inheritance that we have in Christ, I pray for you. And he says, I pray for you because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints. I, you say, well, what, what does that have to do with this prayer? Just this. Those two things are the indicators that their salvation was genuine. He says, I hear you have the two things that prove true salvation, faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints. Now, how did Paul hear this? Well... It had been four years about since he had ministered in Ephesus. But sea travel was relatively easy in those days because of the ships and so forth. And so uh, there was great accessibility to that little small part of the world around the north and west part of the Mediterranean. And additionally, uh, there was a liberty that Paul enjoyed even while he was a prisoner. And that was that they allowed people to come and visit him. So there was a constant flow of Christians, no doubt, coming in and out of Paul's life. And they would be bringing him reports. And as I told you when we first studied the beginning of Ephesians, this letter was not only written to Ephesians, but 
no doubt, all the churches of Asia Minor. And so it's probably that that he has in his mind. He says, of all of you churches in Asia Minor, I have been hearing about you. People visiting, coming by ship, perhaps walking on some of the great Roman highways that would give them access to Paul's location. And so Paul says, I've been hearing good things. In fact, I hear two things. I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. And those, beloved, are the cardinal things. Those are the basic aspects of a true Christian. A true Christian is marked by faith in the Lord Jesus, which gives evidence of itself in love toward all saints. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 9 to 11, it says there, If you claim to have saving faith and hate your brother, you're a liar. Those two go together. By this will all men know you're my disciples, John 13 says, if you have love one for another. And love, as we've defined it so many times, is sacrificial selflessness. Serving others sacrificially, unselfishly. True faith always springs into love. And so he says, I've heard about it. It's genuine. I see it. Now, I want you to see these two things because they're very important. First of all, your faith in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. You see, salvation begins with believing Jesus is Lord. You see that? I was speaking in Miami this week, and a pastor came up to me afterwards, and he says, well, he said, he was kind of, I don't know what, kind of on edge, I think. He said, well, he said, I suppose you're one of those lordship salvationists. I said, what is that? He says, you don't know about lordship salvationism? I said, no, I don't. He says, well, you probably believe that in order to be saved, you have to receive Jesus as Lord. I said, as a matter of fact, I don't know any other way. He said, yeah, I thought so. I said, you, you don't, you're not a lordship salvationist? I was like, I, I, he said, no, no. I said, uh, let me ask you a question. I said, is Jesus Lord? Well, he, he didn't really want to answer, I guess, because he said, well, well, there is a sense in which he is. I said, well, is Jesus Lord? Yes or no? Yes. Well, yes, it's right. He's Lord. So if you receive him, does he come as who he is? Yes, he'd have to, right. Let me ask you this, I said. Does Philippians 2 say that every knee should bow and confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of God? And I said, does Romans 10 say that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, thou shalt be saved? Well, he says, but it doesn't appear in the Gospel of John. I said, what doesn't appear in the Gospel of John? Jesus is Lord? No. He says, the idea of lordship salvationism. I said, I don't know what you're saying. I said, I don't know. What, you just tell me what you're going to do with Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess Jesus as Lord, thou shalt be saved. And then he just said, yes, well, you're a lordship salvationist. And he walked off. <laughs> I, I still don't know where, where he was. How you get salvation minus the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a problem. I think what he was trying to say was that you can receive him as just as Jesus, just as the Savior, without acknowledging him as Lord. But he'd have a tough time handling a couple of passages in the New Testament. 
The point here is, Paul says, I know you're genuine because your faith is in the what? The Lord Jesus. You don't receive Him as Savior and then later as Lord, you get Him who He is. Now, whether you respond to His Lordship or not is another issue. But He's Lord. Now, the second thing he says, not only is your salvation evident by the faith in the Lord Jesus, but your love unto all the saints. Do you notice that this love is indiscriminate? You notice that a true Christian doesn't pick and choose. He loves, and by virtue of that, whoever gets in front gets loved. We used to say this little phrase, well, I love him in the Lord, which means personally he can't stand him. <laughs> Remember that one? Well, I love him in the Lord. As if you had a little pipe coming out of you, you could squirt them with God's love, you know. <laughs> you, can't un, you can't unscramble the egg, folks. If you love them, you love them, and the Lord loves them. And if you don't love them, then the Lord doesn't love them through your not loving them. You love them, all the saints. You can't be discriminate. The world picks and chooses. Paul says in Philippians 2, I pray that you would have the same love. What that means is to love everybody, what? The same. And in 1 John 3, he says, love in word, not in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. Anybody who has a need and don't shut up your heart of mercy when you see them with a need. You can learn all the theology you want and spin off all of the dogma you want, but if you don't love, then you are nothing but sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And true salvation goes from the head to the heart and reaches right out to touch other people. And he says, I am so thankful to God that I've heard about you, that you have faith in the Lord Jesus, and that you love the saints. Now, you know something's kind of sad. That Ephesian church, man, they started out right. But when you get to chapter 2 of Revelation and verse 4, the Lord Jesus writes them a letter. And the Lord Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I have something against you because you have left your, what, first love. Sad to think about it. But the history of the Ephesian church is they left their first love and they went out of existence as a church. They went out of existence. There's got to be faith and love in balance. You know, the monks and the hermits had a loyalty to Christ which separated them from men to live in lo alone in a desert place contemplating faith. It was loveless faith. It never touched anybody. The heresy hunters of the Spanish Inquisition and other ages had a loyalty to their faith, which caused them to literally persecute anybody with a difference. Loveless faith. And I'm afraid there are some Christians in the churches today who are hateful and bitter and resentful of other Christians, and it's loveless faith, and I question, in as I would the cases I just illustrated, whether it's even Genuine, saving faith. The genuine is marked by love. In fact, I'll tell you something, folks. You can't love the Lord Jesus Christ, put your faith in Him, without loving the people that He loves. Do you get that? You can't love the Lord Jesus without loving the people He loves. I'll never forget my son one time. I was driving in a car, and he leaned over to me, and it was about a certain person. He said to me, I love so-and-so. And I did a double take. I didn't even know I knew him. I said to him, what do you mean you love so-and-so? He says, I love so-and-so. I said, why do you love so-and-so? He said, because I always hear you say you love him. 
And I love them too then. Well, that's right. If I love the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 John 5, 1 and 2 says, if I love the Lord Jesus Christ, I will love those begotten by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of it. So he says, I commend you. And I pray for you, verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then his prayer of thanks turns to a petition. And I pray, he says, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And stop right there. He says, man, I'm praying for you that you'll understand your riches in Christ. Warren Wiersbe's pastor of Moody Church has written a little book called Be Rich. And in there he gives an interesting illustration about William Randolph Hearst, who was the late newspaper publisher. Hearst, at one point in his life, decided to invest a, a veritable fortune in the collecting of great pieces of art. And he was collecting them all over the world and storing them in warehouses in different places. And one day he read a description in one of his art uh, books or magazines or whatever, a description of an incredibly valuable piece of art. And he determined that he had to have that piece of art. So he got his agent and he sent him all over the world to find it. No one knew where it was. That guy went all over the world to find that art treasure for William Randolph Hearst. Months and months went by. And finally the man came back and reported, Mr. Hearst, I found it. And with great joy, he said, where, where was it? He said, it was in your warehouse. You bought it years ago. <laughs> Frantically searching for what he already possessed. Paul is praying here, Lord, deliver those Christians from frantically searching for what they already possess. Give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him so that they will know what is theirs and that they'll be able to use it in the living of life. See? Let's face it, people, we do spend a lot of time messing around, chasing stuff we've got. We say, Lord, I need strength. And the Bible says you can do all things through Christ who already strengthens you. Lord, I need love. The love of Christ is shed abroad in your heart. Lord, I need grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Lord, I need peace in the situation. I already left you all my peace that passes understanding. What else is there? You see, Christians scrambling around begging for what they've got. What a waste. And the Bible says you should just ask for wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask it. And wisdom is the sense not to keep asking for what you've got. See, the point is this. Paul says, God, the human mind cannot conceive of the riches of our position in Christ, so please, God, grant to them this understanding. Only the Spirit can search the deep things and reveal them to us. Such understanding is beyond the human mind, and God must enable us to understand. So he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, I love those titles, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that identifies it with him. After all, we're in Christ, right? And if we're in Christ, then he's our God too. And he's the father of glory. That means the one who possesses all things. All glory is his. And so he prays to that God that he may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, notice the word spirit. 
God grants us a spirit. It is an, an anarthrous construction, the Greek, no article, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, people have discussed what spirit is this. Some people say it's the Holy Spirit, that God would grant us the Holy Spirit. But I don't think that's Paul's prayer because every Christian already has the Holy Spirit, right? I don't think that's it. And it's, besides that, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit. So I don't think it's the Holy Spirit. We don't need to ask for the Holy Spirit. We already have the Holy Spirit. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6 says, and Romans 8 9 says all Christians have the Holy Spirit. So that wouldn't be it. And others have said, no, it's the human spirit, that he would give us a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And he's talking about the human spirit. I don't think that's right either because we already have a human spirit. The word pneuma, in which we get breath and air and pneumatic, pneumonia, it's the Greek word, can be translated a lot of ways. And I think the way it should be translated here is as a disposition, an influence, or an attitude which governs the soul of someone. Let me illustrate this. It doesn't have to be the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. It can just be an attitude. For example, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. He wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. He was talking about an attitude. Those were humble people. Now, when we see somebody who's sad, we say, Oh, their spirit's sad. Or we see somebody really playing hard at some game, we say, that is spirited play. Or we see somebody really happy and we say, boy, he's in high spirits. And all we mean is an attitude, an attitude, a disposition, an influence in thinking. And I believe that what Paul is saying is this, give them the fullness of an attitude of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Oh God, he says, let them know in their mind how much they possess in Christ. Give them a deep, rich, keen, strong, full understanding. Now, I would add to that that I think the Holy Spirit and the human spirit are also both implied. And what Paul is praying is this, watch, God sends the Holy Spirit to work on the human spirit to create the right spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Because it's the work of the Spirit. First Corinthians 2, I read you earlier, only the Spirit can search the deep things of God. And by the way, the word revelation deals with the imparting of knowledge and the word wisdom deals with the use of it. So he's saying, God, I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit will work on the human spirit to produce the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That is, that they will know their position and their resource and that they will use it. See? Step out and use it. So he wants the believer to have a full, deep knowledge of God. Not intellectual, but something deeper than that. Something far deeper. And I'm telling you people, I've said this for years and years, and I'll say it till I drop over the Christian life is predicated on what you know. It's got to be here before you can live it. It's got to be revelation before it can be wisdom. You've got to receive it before you can use it. And that's why we spend our time teaching the Word of God. Pat O'Brien, that CBS reporter, said to me, I think I've seen the difference between the true Christians and the false Christians. He said the true Christians are those who are really heavy into studying the Bible. Well, what he was really seeing was that when somebody is heavy into studying the Bible, he gains the revelation of God that is applied in wisdom and his life is what it ought to be. See, that's what he sees. 
So he prays that we would have the divine mind, that we would be able to do what he said to the Colossians, to set our affections on things above and not on things of the earth, to get our mind out of the gutter and onto the great, grandiose, marvelous magnificencies of God. And so Paul prays, God, it's not enough. It's not enough that I just tell them the facts. I pray for them that they would understand the imparting of truth and the use of it in the knowledge of Him. You know, you have Christ. Do you know Christ? If you know Christ, do you really have this, this attitude of wisdom and revelation, this deep sense of knowing God's heart and God's mind? Now, Paul goes on to bring three specific things that he wants us to grasp, and we'll study those next time. Let's pray. It's so great, Father, to know that all the resources that are in Christ are granted to us by faith. Thank you, Father, for every person here, everyone a special life, everyone especially beloved of you, everyone uniquely designed and made and, Father, for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, for those who know and love Him, everyone a part of Your eternal plan. And some, Father, who haven't yet said yes, but You're calling them by Your Spirit. They're part of the plan, too. They're some of Your people yet unborn. Bring them to Yourself today. For those who are in the family, Father, help us to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, a spirit produced as the Holy Spirit works on our human spirit to give us comprehension beyond what is possible in the normal human mind, to know the deep things of God and knowing them to be able to use them, that our position may be known, understood, and lived out. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
that was Walk with God, Go Fishing in it, and this is our eighth anniversary show, so happy on to us. <laughs> and also, next is a song called Fruit of the Spirit by Go Fish, here on Truth Tori. Ready?
Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, is when we remember Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when he entered the city on a colt to the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you probably picture this event with people lined up at the city gate waiting for Jesus to enter, then throwing down their coats and palm branches, hence the name Palm Sunday. But this procession actually started way up on the Mount of Olives, and a crowd of people wasn't waiting for Jesus. They were going with him, a crowd of his disciples who'd seen his miracles. And Jesus wasn't riding on a donkey per se, but rather the donkey's colt, too young to leave its mother. So there were two animals there, not just one. The Bible says the colt had never been ridden, just as in the Old Testament certain animals were set aside for sacred purposes. Jesus told the disciples where to find the colt and its mother and to tell the owners the Lord needs them. Whenever a king entered a city on a horse, it was a symbol of war, but a colt signified peace. This was according to the prophet Zechariah, who said, Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble on a donkey's colt. And when they entered Jerusalem, the Jews didn't know what was going on. Matthew 21, 10 through 11 says the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds with him said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The triumphal entry was Jesus' public declaration that he was the promised Messiah, King of Israel. And upon entering, he went not to the palace, but to the temple, the house of God, because he is King of kings and Lord of lords, when we understand the text. Pagan holiday? No, it's a Christian holiday, celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. So it's very much not a pagan holiday. Right, but doesn't it replace a pagan holiday? No, Easter celebrations in the early church were associated with Passover since that was the season in which Jesus was crucified and risen. In 325, the Council of Nicaea decided that a Christian Passover would be held on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox, independent of the Jewish Passover. Fine, but isn't the name Easter from a pagan goddess? No, the claim that Easter comes from the pagan goddess Ustra was made up by 8th century English monk Bede, but no traditions for such a goddess exist. The name is probably taken from the Anglo-Saxon word for the spring equinox. Alright, but aren't Easter eggs a pagan tradition? No, they come from German Lenten tradition, though some would have you believe that the Easter egg originates with Nimrod's egg-laying wife. Okay, but the Easter bunny, that's pagan, right? Actually, no. The Easter hare was made up by German Lutherans as a Santa Claus-like character awarding children for good behavior, which has its own set of theological problems. So again, Easter isn't pagan. Now, while there's nothing in the Bible about celebrating Easter, it does say not to quarrel over opinions about days. If someone wants to celebrate Easter Sunday, they're not doing anything pagan. And if someone doesn't, they're not doing anything unchristian. Let us as believers rejoice together in our risen Lord every day when we understand the text. Once again, that's from when we understand the text. Uh, what? W-W-U-T-T. And their website is www.tt.com. www.tt.com. And you're from me, Melissa Cantrell, here on Truth Be Told Radio. Our website is truthbetoldradio.com. And my website is smilesandstuff.com. S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F.com. And truthbetoldradio.com. So check those both out. And let's see. What I'm going to do next is play a song from Go Fish. It's called File Book Bop here on Truth Be Told Radio. Bible book, 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 Bible book,
Will they make fun? Where will they go in the time on earth the sun? We gotta be the 
just as loudly as his words tell me that the passion he has for making his best video to let people know that he believed in Jesus, the tone, the love, the excitement, tell me that that does not adorn the gospel. Furthermore, it proves he knew the gospel. There are too many people who are like a Mr. Legalist. That's right, Mr. Legalist. If you recall, in Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim got himself a burden on his back. Remember what that burden was? It's a trick question, so make sure you answer very carefully. Christian, you had that thing way at the top. What was that thing?
Do my show. Come here. Shh. In Great Britain, a woman was just taken to court for committing the high crime of sharing her faith in the work. Go to rest, uh, the www.wretched.tv for that, www.wretched.tv, and here we go with Go Fish with Glory here on Trophy Tori.
Jeroboam rule over them. So what did he decide to do? That's right. Build two golden calves. Boeing should have read the book of Exodus. And then he built two other worship centers and he built altars in the high places so the people didn't have to go to Jerusalem. He said, here's your God and this is where you can worship. You don't need to get a passport to go to the south thinking he was protecting his kingdom. That was the sin of King Jeroboam. What does that have to do with the fellow on the left who is Archbishop Justin Welby of the Anglican Communion? The answer, a lot. You see, we have a type when we read the Old Testament stories about Israel. Israel are a type of something in the New Testament, a fuzzy picture. We see them all over the Old Testament. But the nation of Israel, a holy, peculiar, set-apart people, is a picture of what in the New Testament? The answer is the church. We are a holy, peculiar, set-apart people. And so in the Old Testament, we see the nation of Israel is a fuzzy picture of the church. And if that is the case, that Israel points to, it's a type of the church, then what does that make the king a picture of? I would suggest to you it makes him a picture of the New Testament pastor. And that's where our connection is made. What do we learn from King Jeroboam? When the king, pastor, doesn't follow hard after God's word, calamity ensues. We have a lesson to be learned here. We have a king and 32 kings who didn't obey God's precepts. And what happened to the nation? Disaster. Lesson for today, if the modern-day pastor compromises, fudges, tries to manage things without submitting to God's word and his way of doing things, then you are going to have nothing but grief in the church. That was fascinating, Todd. And what does that have to do with the price of tea in Texas on a Tuesday? Glad you asked. Here's the headline from the United Kingdom. The Guardian Church of England in turmoil as Synod rejects report on same-sex relationships. <laughs> that, that could be good, or that could be bad, depending on what that report said. Here are the details. The Church of England's Synod, meeting in London this week, voted on Thursday to effectively reject the report. Oh, no. Which upholds traditional teaching that marriage is a lifelong union of a man and a woman. If the report had said homosexuality and homosexual marriage, it's all groovy, and they gave it a thumbs down, we'd be rejoicing. But that's not what the report was about. It actually, rather surprisingly, upheld traditional biblical marriage. That is where our modern-day King Jeroboam enters the scene. This is where we see, uh-oh, a leader who is not leading with God's word. We see a modern-day King Jeroboam in 
Archbishop of the Anglican Communion, Justin Welby. This from The Guardian. Jane Ozan, sorry, Jane of Oxford, accused the bishop of putting political expediency ahead of principle, fearing a split. They had chosen not to lead, but to manage. Whoop! There it is, the sin of King Jeroboam. Not leading with God's word, but managing, making sure everyone is happy. And if you think that that is just the opinion and observation of Jane O., listen to what Justin Welby himself said from The Guardian. Welby, the final speaker to be called at the big meeting, said, How we deal with profound disagreement is the challenge we face. No, it's not. The church needed to be neither careless in our theology nor ignorant of the world around us. Do you see what he's doing? Yeah, the word. We still have to worship, but we need to be aware of the situation. It's a long way to go to Jerusalem. They might abandon me for another king. So I need to be mindful of that and then make a decision. That was King Jeroboam. And we have a modern-day King Jeroboam in Archbishop Justin Welby who is not leading with God's word, and the results are and will be disaster for the Anglican communion. Why do I bring that up? Two reasons. Number one, we need to be praying for that fellow. The Anglican Communion is an Orthodox Christian denomination, and we want them to succeed, not fail, not to go the way of King Jeroboam. So be praying for that man. Number two, a lesson from this tale of a modern-day King Jeroboam. Is it possible the mindset, the finagling of Scripture, the modus operandi of the Church of England is soon going to hop across the ocean, and we're going to have to deal with it here. How lost and hurting is our world? Take a look at this young man who paid a cosmetic surgeon $50,000 to transition into becoming a Martian. This young man apparently watched a sci-fi movie from the 1940s and concluded that's what a Martian must look like. That's what I feel I am. He gathered up the funds and he persuaded a human being to take a scalpel to his face and transition him into looking like what we think a Martian might possibly look like. Not to mention the society that embraces it. Our world is lost and our world is hurting and there is one solution, the gospel. Will you join us in rescuing the perishing? That was from Wretched on their YouTube page called Another Denomination Goes Flying Away. And you're saying we must control it here on Tripitola Radio. And then do another song from Go Fish. This one is called Praise You, Shackles Praise You, here on Tupitori.
tried to go fish, and now we have the fish was saved here on Tributary. I have a Bible that I read. I know the truth, and I believe. I go to church with my friends.
was a kid. He actually scared me. Prepare now to meet the late George the Animal Steel. <laughs> you might wonder why I'm all smiles and happy today, but it's very simple. If you're watching this, I am dead and I am with Jesus. Bye-bye. That's the same guy. What happened to him? George, the animal steal, done, got saved. Recently he died, and he wanted people to know that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, unlike some testimonies where you go, okay, I, sh I sure hope they were Christian, this guy talked and gave a testimony that sure indicated, I think we're going to be seeing George in heaven.
the wicked gate. Do you know how your friends and family are going to treat you? No, 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 no. You need to go up that mountain, think Sinai, and you need to visit Mr. Morality and his son, Civility. What were they? Well, they inhabited the city of legalism. These were people. These were people who professed to be followers of Jesus Christ who weren't. They weren't actually saved because unlike George the Animal Steel, they didn't know they had a burden on their back. That's why Mr. Legalist was without it. He, he, was, he was not even aware that he was a sinner. In other words, before somebody can recognize that the gospel is good news indeed, they need to first recognize that they are a sinner like George the Animal Steel.
support us any amount, we would be profoundly grateful. That was from the TV show, uh, TV show called Wretched, and they're spelled W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, and you can see them on wretched.tv, that's their website, and also they have a radio show called Wretched Radio, and the podcast is it's, uh, from Monday through Friday, and check that out, wretched.tv. Thanks for listening to Control here on Truth Be Told Radio, and going to play one more, let's see, one more song before we go, and see, this is Sheltered and Time of Store here on Truth Be Told Radio. Ark of Salvation. This is Ken Ham, and our popular life-size Noah's Ark is open south of Cincinnati. 
I believe the greatest symbol of salvation, aside from the cross, is Noah's Ark. The flood was God's judgment on a wicked world filled with sin. The only way to be saved from this judgment was to go through the one door of the ark. Someday God is going to judge this world again, this time with fire. But we don't need another ark to be saved. We need Jesus Christ. Just like there was only one door into the ark of salvation, there's only one way to escape God's judgment. And that's through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. To be saved, we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection. That is the only way to be saved. Discover more about our Ark of Salvation, Jesus Christ, at AnswersRadio.com. You can also learn about the full-size Ark open now when you go to AnswersRadio.com. The first and last Adam. This is Ken Ham, the president of the ministry behind the Answers Bible Curriculum. Today's Good Friday, a day many Christians remember Jesus' sacrificial death. Now while we reflect on Christ's death for us, we should be reminded of Genesis. The Apostle Paul tells us the first Adam brought death into the world. The penalty for sin is death, and Adam chose to sin. We physically die because of our sin in Adam, and our continued sin. Now Paul also tells us the last Adam, Jesus, brought life. You see, Jesus had to physically die to take our penalty of death upon himself. Some Christians say Adam was just a myth. But if Adam didn't really live, sin, and bring death into the world, why'd Jesus have to come and die? Want to know more about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the importance of a literal Adam? Visit us at AnswersRadio.com to discover more. There are more answers at AnswersRadio.com. The God of Evolution? This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. Many Christians think that God could have used evolution to create, but evolutionary ideas contradict the Bible. The Bible says that birds were created before dinosaurs, but evolution teaches that birds evolved from dinosaurs. Genesis tells us that living things reproduce according to their kind. Evolution says that one kind changed into another kind. Jesus said humans were created at the beginning. Evolutionists say humans arrived billions of years after the beginning. And think about this. Death is a necessary process in evolution, but God's word is clear that death is a result of sin, not part of God's original creation. God didn't use evolution. Just read Genesis. Want to learn more about creation, evolution, and Genesis? Visit AnswersRadio.com to learn more, and you'll find hundreds more faith-building radio programs at AnswersRadio.com. Do skeptics need more evidence? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. It can be really discouraging to share the truth with a skeptic, only to have him ignore everything you've just shared. It doesn't seem to matter how good our evidence is, some people just won't believe. Will finding even more evidence be the answer for them? No, probably not. You see, it's often not a matter of the evidence. It's a heart matter. The people of Jesus' day saw him heal the blind, deaf and lame, and even raise the dead, and yet many refused to believe. When Jesus' body disappeared from the tomb, instead of believing the miracle, the religious leaders made up a story to explain away the evidence of his resurrection. It's not a matter of the evidence, It's a hard heart problem. To learn more about sharing the gospel with others, visit AnswersRadio.com and sign up for Ken Ham's daily insights right to your email inbox at AnswersRadio.com. Why does creation matter? 
This is Ken Ham, often a guest on radio and TV on the Bible's authority and reliability. I'm often asked by Christians why Genesis and creation even matter. They say, shouldn't we just be preaching the gospel? Creation matters because the gospel is founded in Genesis. Scripture teaches that God originally made a perfect world, but Adam and Eve's sin brought death into creation. It's because of Adam's sin that we needed Jesus to come as the last Adam. Without the fall in Genesis, there would be no need for a saviour. Creation is also important because it's an authority issue. You see, there are only two starting points, man's word and God's word. Whenever we trust man's word over God's word, we're making man the authority, not God. We need to start with God's word. Visit our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com to discover more about the importance of Genesis. You can also learn about the full-size Noah's Ark at AnswersRadio.com. Is homology evidence for evolution? This is Ken Ham, heading up the ministry behind a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. When we look around, we see many similarities among living things. This is called homology, and it's often used as evidence of descent from a common ancestor. But just because something is similar doesn't mean that it had a common ancestor. After all, a car is more similar to a bicycle than to a boat, but this doesn't mean the car and bicycle share a common ancestor. They look similar because they're designed for the same purpose and to function in a similar environment. It's the same in the living world. Living things were all made by a common designer to live in the same world and accomplish the same basic purposes. So it's no surprise that God used a similar design. Want to know more about design in nature? Visit our faith-affirming website to learn about how creation supports the history of the Bible beginning in Genesis at AnswersRadio.com. That's it for our show. Better go out with Yancy and friends for the We Are Really. Bye for now. The B-I-B-L.